Greetings and welcome to Bierkegaard, the writings of Soren Kierkegaard. Um, looking forward to getting into today's uh, episode. It's going to be based on the scripture burst, uh, which Soren writes about in his upbuilding discourse. Um, this is one of three. So this is the second round of upbuilding discourses. There's actually three of them uh, that were dedicated to his father after his father passed away. Uh, so this is the second round. There's three of them, and two of the upbuilding discourses concern this verse. First uh, Peter 4, colon 7 through 12. Now, I don't know why Soren divide this in half. It's not real clear to me. Maybe it'll become more clear as we continue to work through this. But uh, the verse is First Peter 4, 7 through 12, which is based on Proverbs 10 through 12. Love will hide a multitude of sins. And if we think about uh, the word love in this context, where Jesus asked Peter uh, before Jesus went to the cross if, um, if, uh, if Peter loved him, uh, Peter says, I do love you. But uh, Peter faltered in some important moments uh, in reference to abandoning Jesus, denied that he knew him. So even though he loved him, when his, uh, when his neck was on the line also, he denied that he knew Jesus to the servant girl who asked him and had inferred and suggested pretty strongly that he knew Jesus. Uh, so when Peter uses this term, will hide a multitude of sins, he's not just quoting scripture, he's quoting his life uh, because uh, Jesus had forgiven him quite quite a lot. And uh, I'm not going to bust on Peter. Uh, Peter was at least there to be in a position to denied that he knew Jesus. Uh, I think most of us wouldn't even have been there. We would have taken to the hills. Uh, so Peter's often faulted for his lack of faith when he was out in the water, but at least he got out of the boat. A lot of us wouldn't have done that much. So Peter has a lot of admirable qualities, even when he falters, even when he fails. So I just would mention that as an aside. Love will hide a multitude of sins. First Peter uh, 4 uh, colon 7 through 12, based on Proverbs 10 through 12. Again, this is three upbuilding discourses, and they were published in um, uh, to the late uh, 1843 uh, to the late Michael Peterson Kierkegaard, formerly a clothing mer merchant here in the city. My father, uh, these discourses are dedicated. I think it was 1843. I'm not sure. Uh, I believe that's what it was. Oh, it does say 1843 on a different page, so 1843. And uh, just read the uh, intro to the preface to these three upbuilding discourses. And uh, this is uh, uh, for these two that are based on 1 Peter 4, 7, uh, 4, 7 through 12, and also the third one. And uh, there's a citation here that goes from, on... To an end note from 70, let me see what that is referring to. Shoot, I don't have that listed, but I can go back and look at that. 70, so uh, the preface is citing an end note in 70, and I don't have a copy of that in front of me. I put that away, but let me take a look here. I can go to the back and find out what that's referring to, 70. Uh, see Matthew 10, 10 uh, 29. So this preface is based on Matthew 10, 29. Although this little book, which is called Discourses, so this was small. This was three uh, three discourses for more like a pamphlet or a booklet. I guess that would be a better way of calling it, but a little book uh, is also fine, which is called Discourses, not Sermons, because its author does not have the authority to preach. 
Uh, so Soren was not licensed by the state of Denmark and the church to be a pastor. Uh, does not have the authority to have authority to preach upbuilding discourses, not discourses uh, for upbuilding, because the speaker by no means claims to be a teacher. Knows quite well what its author knows even better, that it is a trifle that could easily be trampled underfoot or, or killed as it ventures out into the great world or snatched up by a bird of prey and never reaches its destination. I nevertheless, nevertheless, I nevertheless, uh, cheerfully, without fear, without anxious agitation, shut my door at the time of its departure. Small as it is, probably will slip through, slip through, <laughs> sip through. I'm sipping coffee. It's sipping through my uh, mouth right here. Slip through, since it shifts for itself and it goes its way and tends to its errand and discerns its own enigmatic path. Enigmatic path. <laughs> for such a smart guy, I certainly struggle with the pronunciation of words sometimes. Uh, God keeps me humble. Until it finds that single individual, him and Keltke, we've talked about that before, uh, that's who Soren's writing to. He's not writing to the masses. He's writing to each individual. Who I with joy and gratitude call my reader. And I with joy and gratitude call you my listener. Uh, a small crowd of Kierkegaard devotees. The latter range of Soren Kierkegaard. So I do have gratitude that you're listening to this. Uh, time is the greatest currency. Whom I uh, with... Uh, I. Money's, money's a paltry thing compared to time. With uh, whom I with joy and gratitude call my reader. Uh, until it finds what it is seeking, that favorable, favorably disposed person who reads aloud to himself. So this is why we read these aloud. This is what Soren advises. There's something about speaking a word uh, where, it's, where it's audible. It becomes more real in a way. You know, when God created the world, he said and pronounced it good there's something about putting words to actions and more actions to words that is extremely powerful i don't know exactly what it means i'm not a word of faith person which says i want a new plane and all that kind of stuff and somehow a plane appears in my backyard what i write in stillness who with his voice breaks the spell on the letters with his voice summons forth what the mute letters have on their lips, as it were, but are unable to express without great effort, stammering and stuttering, who in his mood rescues the captive thoughts that long for release, that favorably disposed person whom I with joy and gratitude call my refuge, who by making my thoughts his own does more for me than I do for him. That is... Um, Certainly true as a writer, uh, myself, and a, a podcast producer. Uh, it brings me great joy when people um, get back to me and, and, and tell them they appreciate what I'm doing. Uh, that's gold. That's gold. Uh, it's gold of affirmation, not just gold. Material gold. It's not even that. Um, it's more than that. Uh, so Soren's feeling a sense of gratitude when... Um, who, by making my thoughts his, 
own does more for me than I do for him. I hear back from people occasionally, and I don't know they're contacting me because of the podcast. I had somebody from Germany reach out to me recently on Facebook, <laughs> and I didn't know that it was no reference to the podcast and, and the and the friend request. So I asked the person, uh, the gentleman, if uh, he was contacting me because of the podcast, and he did get back to me eventually and indicated he did. And he wasn't particularly uh, conversant in English, and I am not conversant at all in German. So most of his posts are in German, so I figured it would be kind of a tough communication thing. But I appreciate the fact he got back to me. I didn't know. Sometimes I get these friend requests, and we all have this happen to us where we don't know where the origin is, and we assume people are up to no good. Um, if a young woman uh, wants to be friends with me, I, I, could assume it's, uh, I assume it's uh, not a real account. <laughs> unless they were a former student of mine, and even so, I'm cautious. Um, it's not normal for a young woman to extend an overture uh, for friendship and more. It's often suggestive of more uh, to uh, uh, an elderly man, older man. I don't like to call myself elderly, but in most people's eyes, I would be, who's nearing 60 years of age. So I have that filter on me. I'm always questioning why that happens, and usually do not follow through unless I'm convinced the person has better motives than uh, something of that nature. And if it does not find him or not in this way, my joy still remains to send it forth. Uh, because just as the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to the one who sends him, he refreshes the soul of his master. Proverbs twenty-five thirteen. I think there's a very instructive uh, line here portion of this last concluding sentences and if it does not find him or is not in this way my joy still remains to send it forth and this sounds like a small comment here but i think it's very profound whenever you create something whenever you give something of yourself to others whether it's like in a relationship or it could be a, a book or a podcast or a gift of some nature a gift you give yourself you give yourself or a portion of yourself that's a manifestation of yourself to someone others, um, you have to let it go like a bird. You have to let it fly on its own. And um, I would say that this verse from 1 Peter 4, 7 through 12, which says, love will hide a multitude of sins. Let's first get into this word love a little bit in terms of how it references this idea that you let something go. If it was love to start with, and if it is love, it should never be converted to hatred. You know, if a person doesn't reciprocate or doesn't appreciate what we did, and this I'm preaching to myself here. Uh, we're all human. We all have hurts and resentments that we nurse, uh, like a, like a nursing mother. We resent our we uh, we nurse our hurts, and uh, the best thing to do is kind of starve it, starve those hurts, and not feed them because they grow and they turn into other things, bigger things. If we do if we do nurse them, nursing a grudge. It's a good, it's a good kind of image. Nursing a grudge, it's like almost like giving the grudge uh, nutrition, so it grows like a tumor or something. Um, if it was uh, love and turned to hate or indifference, it wasn't love to start with. That's my opinion. I'm not sure that's entirely accurate. I'd like to hear from you guys to say if it was love to start with, can it turn to hate if the person doesn't reciprocate or burns you or you know abuses you afterwards. I would say it was maybe wasn't love to start with. I'm saying maybe because I'm not sure. I have my opinion that I think it probably wasn't love to start with if it becomes hatred because of lack of uh, reciprocity or lack of appreciation on the receiving party. 
I think it could become like disappointment or hurt. Sure, I agree with that. Uh, I would say that's true for me. Uh, but hatred, no. Um, and we have to get back to that book that we did, uh, that last uh, season of Purity of Heart is the Will One Thing, where Soren develops these ideas in a lot of detail, where we do things because we expect a reward. We do things to avoid punishment. Uh, so when we're, when we're doing these supposed acts of love, we're actually looking for something back, a reward. And that's human nature, but someone would say that's not being spiritually pure because love doesn't do that. Uh, or we want to avoid punishment. And I would certainly say that at least some of my obedience throughout my life has been because I didn't want to be punished for it. And again, these are not necessarily entirely wrong like to expect people to treat us with consideration back or affection is a human emotion. I don't think God wants to make us robots, but I think it does call into question that if we go from supposedly loving someone to hatred because of their indifference or lack of appreciation, I think an honest person would say, well, maybe it wasn't done with love to start with. Because I think love doesn't change. Love is eternal. So if we wondered what was best for the person to start with, even if they don't reciprocate and even if they abuse us, we still want what God wants for them, which is to be the better self that they can be. Uh, Soren also talks about that silent idea that God will triumph through us. We're not necessarily looking for recognition or reward from the crowd. We don't necessarily want to avoid punishment, but we want to stroke our ego, our ego uh, stroke, the, stroke the eagle of the ego that wants to fly high that we were the one that God used to accomplish his will. And we, uh, we, um, we savor that and we suck upon that like a, like a lifesaver. Uh, others may not know that, but we take a silent, a silent uh, satisfaction knowing that God triumphed through us. Again, that's not entirely wrong, but usually the way we want it to happen is not to uh, go through a lot of suffering. We, <laughs> we want it to be painless. Because God's triumph through us is often through the cross. Uh, so Proverbs ten twelve, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers covers a multitude of sins. Now this uh, this word sins is pretty direct, and so this is kind of what I would consider kind of a balanced um, scripture verse that it does talk about sin. It's not dysfunction. It's not being. Uh, it's not like psychologizing these words or using therapeutic language like dysfunction or addictive personality or all these kind of safer terms that remove responsibility from people. Not to say there aren't realities and truth in those words, but the Bible is very clear. These are sins. These are transgressions of the moral law. But love covers a multitude of sins. So you got, you got this idea that sins are real, they're objective, uh, they're an accounting that removes from the account of our souls uh, the dignity and the, and the presence that God gives us. And, uh, but love covers a multitude of sins. And the closest thing I could kind of imagine when I think about this covering a multitude of sins is that we have a river that's uh, fairly close to where I live. It's called the Susquehanna River. Now, it's not as big as the Hudson or the Mississippi, but it's a pretty amazing river. It's one of the largest um, rivers in the United States, and it starts in upstate New York and concludes at the Chesapeake Bay. And it winds through most of Pennsylvania, um, and it's, it can be shallow in parts. Uh, there's a confluence that connects up in upstate Pennsylvania where two rivers become one and become the Susquehanna. 
but it's Origin Point. It's up uh, past Cooperstown, north of that, I think. Uh, but the Susquehanna, uh, for much much of its history, at least in terms of colonial times, uh, Native peoples used to live close to the river, of course, and there's uh, historic sites that uh, the Native peoples lived on. They often lived close to water, which makes sense. Um, you can survive without food for many, many weeks, most of us at least. Um, most of us have a reserve of calories and protein, uh, but you can't live long without water, maybe a couple days. <clears throat> so um, it made a lot of sense the Native peoples would live close to water because you need it so much. You need it for consumption and for washing and all that kind of stuff. So the river is about five minutes away from here. And uh, for most of its history since colonial times, it was a, a working river in the sense there was a lot of industry on the river, like lumber, coal. Uh, the train ran along it with coal and all that, and ironworks and all that kind of stuff. But there's a lot of pollution in the river. Now, the river is a lot healthier than it used to be, and you can kind of see that by the wildlife that exists on the river. There's a, a local photographer that takes pictures of all the birds that live close to the river or on the river. And there's eagles, but there's all kinds of stuff. Like, I can't see these birds in the distance, but this guy has a telephoto lens on his camera. It's amazing the diversity that's out there. And that indicates that the river's healthier because um, the birds feed off of insects, and insects also feed the fish, and it's a whole ecosystem. So no birds essentially means no insects, which means the fish are going to be limited because they can't feed off of uh, the insects and this and that. When people say, like, you know, in their backyards they want to kill all the insects and all the mosquitoes uh, through a zapper, you have to remember that that's what the um, other life forms in your backyard eat, eat uh, to survive. They eat bugs and insects and bats eat uh, mosquitoes and all that. So mosquitoes are uh, obviously a vexing problem, but they're not the enemy always. They do spread diseases like malaria, but we need uh, mosquitoes to be part of the ecosystem in order to have birds and to have fish and all that kind of stuff. So you have to remember it's not just about mosquitoes. But the Susquehanna has a lot of latent damage in it. Even though the the surface of the water is a lot healthier than it used to be, and we all get our water supply from it, there's a layer in the Susquehanna along the bottom with all these toxic chemicals and all this residue from industry that it just sits there. And it stays pretty inert until we get a storm out on the, on the river, and all this junk gets kicked up. And it's PCBs, and it's cancerous material, and it's industrial waste, and... Uh, uh, it just made me think that you know underneath us all when we uh, when we uh, when we do when we do suppose it good for other people and then a storm comes they don't reciprocate or they don't express affection or appreciation <laughs> all this uh, all this all this toxicity that's underneath kind of comes to the surface you know and it's not as far away as we think it is it's just the storm that dredged it up and so the the Susquehanna River is like that and it's not as healthy as it looks a lot of times and when it's put under uh, Put under the conditions of a, a storm, all that, all that toxicity gets dredged up from the bottom, and we're not a whole lot different than that. Uh, just to remind ourselves where we've been, the uh, first uh, upbuilding discourse, uh, those, uh, discourses, there were two of them. The first one is about faith, um, and um, it's not just a bridge. Faith is not just a bridge to salvation, which is tends to be how us Protestants see it us uh, evangelicals, us reformed Christians, whatever whatever category we're in. Um, faith is also a destination that, um, that God is going to take us to eternity. So we arrive, uh, uh, we arrive at heaven, whatever that looks like. And um, so it's not just getting there. Faith is not just the bridge to get to that place. It is also 
the belief that that place exists. There's a there's a better there's a better reality outside of this fallen world. Uh, so faith, uh, Soren is developing is much broader than this the idea of a bridge to salvation. So he wants us to always keep eternity in mind uh, and not put our hope and our trust in things of this world that are passing away. So that was the first upbuilding discourse. And the second one was every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. With him there's no variation of shifting shadow, which is out of James. And uh, we talked about how that could be, um, trials and tribulations could be a gift. And God gives us his peace and his wisdom in the midst of that. He develops patience in us and hope. And so uh, things that we may not think are, are good often have good results because God was in it. Think about um, Joseph in the Old Testament was sold into slavery by his brothers and half-brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel, what would become the 12 tribes of Israel from Jacob. And uh, he says at the end when he's in Egypt and he's second in command and his brothers and half-brothers come to beg for food in Egypt because he stored away all that grain. If you remember that story. Joseph says something very instructive. He said, um, what was meant for evil has turned out to be good because God was in it. And so God does not um, approve the evil, but God uses the evil. And Joseph says as much when he forgives his brothers. He said, what you did was evil, selling me into slavery, pretending that I had been killed by a mountain lion or whatever, and uh, telling, telling Jacob, my father, that I was dead. Uh, that, was, uh, that was evil, uh, but God was in it. And uh, Joseph winds up saving his, his family through all that. So that's a good story to read if you ever need to uh, get confidence in the midst of trials. That's not over yet. You don't know how God's going to use it. Uh, so this is love will hide a multitude of sins. Um, it's based on the epistle, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 12. What is it that makes a person great, admired by creation, well-pleasing in the eyes of God? What is it that makes a person strong, stronger than the whole world? What is it that makes him weak, weaker than a child? What is it that makes a person unwavering, more unwa unwavering than a rock? What is it that makes him soft, softer than wa wax? It is love. What is it that is older than everything? It is love. What is it that outlives everything? It is love. And this reminds me of that scripture verse. Uh, I think it's 1 Corinthians, uh, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of this is love. Uh, that's from the Apostle Paul. You hear that a lot of weddings, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, what is it that cannot be taken by, uh, but itself takes all? It is love. What is it that cannot be given, but itself gives all? It is love. What is uh, that perseveres when everything falls away? It is love. What is it that comforts when all comforts fails? When all comfort fails, it is love. What is it that endures when everything is changed? It is love. What is it that remains when the imperfect is abolished? It is love. Excuse me. What is it that witnesses when prophecy is silent? It is love. What is it that does not cease when the vision ends? It is love. What is it that sheds life when dark, when uh, the dark saying ends? It is love. What is it that gives a blessing, gives blessings uh, to the abundance of the gift is love? What is it that gives uh, pith to the angel's words? It is love. What is it that makes the widow's gift? It is abundance. In abundance, it is love. So that comes from the scriptures. The you know, widow's might, the two, uh, the, two, uh, the two copper whatever, copper coins into the temple treasury. It is love. 
What is it that turns the words of the simple person into wisdom? It is love. What is, what is it that is never changed, even though everything has changed? It is love. And that alone is love, which never becomes something else. Uh, so I think sort of agree to the idea that if it was love to start with, it will be love at the end. And if it turns into something else, <laughs> there's a pretty good suggestion that it wasn't love to start with. The pagan, too, extolled love, its beauty and its power, but his love could turn into something else that he extolled almost more. Love was beautiful, more beautiful than everything, but revenge was sweet, sweeter than everything. So inferior was the pagan's thinking about love and about the heavenly, uh, the heavenly so selfish was everything both in heaven and on earth, that the power who benevolently gave human beings the joy of love Enviously reserved revenge for himself because it was the sweetest. Revenge is sweet. I agree with that. It can be. And there's a justice that God will account for in the world. Everything will be made right. But human revenge, talked about this in James, that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. That sweetness is very corrosive to our teeth, our our soul's teeth get corroded by that revenge of sweetness. We have to be very careful about indulging in that in that delicacy. I, I've seen things happen which please me in a way, because God's 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 ways triumphed over the wickedness in a situation, and. Um, but I often felt like I didn't have to do it. Like I only play a role. I just have to be faithful. It's not. It's not to me to issue the circumstances and the consequences. A lot of times, people's reality, uh, if they're if they're sowing a lot of bad seed, they're going to find someone else that's doing just like they are, and they're going to come in conflict with each other. You see this a lot out in the road. The two selfish drivers that are driving dangerously often wind up confronting each other. Now the problem is, is they're making things very dangerous for other people in the midst of their conflict, but they often irritate each other and antagonize each other. And we just have to stay out of the way. Let God, let God deal with it. I don't know. I struggle with that because I don't want to be passive in the face of bad behavior. I think that's passive-aggressive. It's like, well, if we turn the cheek too much, and I know what Jesus is saying, that we're not to take offense and not to escalate. I think there's great wisdom in that. I think sometimes we have to speak uh, the truth in order to um, restore a sense of ethical judgment in a situation. So I don't think we have to always be silent. I think we do have to have love in our character and our spirit when we do it so we're not vehement, we're not hateful. Uh, we can say truthful things in very hateful ways. I think if we have love as our motivation, and I'm condemning myself to some degree because I don't always have love and certain conflicts, especially when I'm out driving. I can't say that's love that causes me to be passive. Uh, just I just realize I'm fatalistic about that my confrontation is not going to do any good. Sometimes in other situations, they're a little bit more personal. and the person's right in front of me and I drive a car, I can be a little bit more direct. Uh, but I think we want, have to want what's best for other people. We all know uh, friends and neighbors and family members that are doing bad things in their lives that are hurting themselves and hurting other people. And if we wind up being condemning, it doesn't really do much to move that person in the right direction. We have to confront with tears in our eyes. We have to be sad about it. And this is what I think uh, Peter's getting into. 
is that love will hide a multitude of sins. We have to have forbearance. And, you know, working with teenagers, um, they make a lot of mistakes. Uh, you can call them sins or immaturity or whatever. Sometimes it is sinful. Sometimes it's just them being kids. And you have to just have, uh, you know, as a counselor or teacher, somebody that works with the kids, you just have to be patient. You have to realize, well, I was like that too. You know, I can't judge this child because this child's just doing what I did. And it's trying to find their way. And they may not be handling themselves well. And they may be doing destructive things. They may be doing dangerous things. But I will tell you one thing. Until the kid knows that I cared about them or knows that we care about them, they're not going to change. We have to, we have to express that concern in the context of caring. So the multitude of sins, covering a multitude of sins, is, is that, that forbearance. It's that, it's that understanding that God um, is patient with us, that God covers a multitude of our sins. And um, we're not done yet. We're not, we're not what we should be. And the people that we interact with are not done yet. We're all works in progress. Uh, God's grace is still being manifested in us. And we have to, um, we have to be patient and, and not try to rush it. What is it that never changes, uh, never changed, even though everything has changed? It is love. And only that which never became something else is love. Uh, so Soren reiterates that position that love doesn't become something else. That which gives away everything and for that reason demands nothing. Uh, that which demands nothing and therefore has nothing to lose. That which blesses and blesses when it is cursed. That which loves its neighbor, but whose enemy is also its neighbor. Uh, that which leaves revenge to the Lord, because it takes comfort in the thought that he is even more merciful. It is of this love that Peter speaks in the text just read, and just as this love many times in many ways received an apostolic witness, so he witnesses here again to its power when he says, Love will hide a multitude of sins. It is these words, this witness, that we shall look at more closely as we deliberate on how love hides a multitudes, uh, hides a multitude of sins. So we first have to deal with this issue. Should we call to mind that every human being, if he is honest, only all too often, only all too often, catches himself in being able protractedly? penetratingly and expectantly to interpret this sad truth that revenge is sweet. Um, let me just go back a little bit and pr pr provide a little bit of context for that verse. But how shall we speak of this? Shall we speak in such a way that we do not give ourselves time to dwell on the words because the mere sound contains a silent reproach that evokes a sorrowful longing for them and produces a striving towards them, toward them, toward the goal that is set for every human being to strive toward. Shall we speak in such a way that if possible, even in this hour of the single individual might resolve to take the opportune moment, that if possible, the words might move someone they encountered standing still and doing nothing to begin the race, someone they encountered on the track to speed up the race, someone they encountered running the race to run faster and hurry up after the perfect should we speak that way if, as if we uh, were speaking to the imperfect? Should we call to mind how rarely indeed has found even someone who either never knew or has utterly forgotten the, the world's childhood's learning that revenge is sweet? So the desire for re revenge would be an indication that, we, uh, that our love was, was very faulty to start with. Um, 
And then Edith Swan gets into kind of a diagnosis here that cunningly knows how to discover people's fault, that admittedly does not misuse its knowledge to condemn, but nevertheless, by its curiosity, does not so much violate the neighbor as hinder itself. So we can use our discernment sometimes to poke into matters that we should just stay away from. Just think about like social media, like uh, celebrities' personal lives. Now I get it that like Taylor Swift has a very open, uh, because she's a celebrity, her life is very open to other people to weigh in on. Or, you know, just think about another celebrity where we get into the celebrity's personal business. And I, I know they're a public figure and they have to kind of make their peace with being a public figure to start with. But a lot of times when like social media or other other avenues of information get into the private life of celebrities, there's an un, there's an unholy desire to know more about that situation than we really need to know. <laughs> like, why do I care who Taylor Swift is dating and if the if the boyfriend's a good dude or not? Like, what what investment do I have in that? Why do I feel concerned about that? Now, if somebody's a fan of Taylor Swift, maybe they're legitimately interested and they care about her and they see it how it affects your music and they maybe relate to it in a way but uh i think a lot of times love is just not getting uh not getting uh involved in something that's none of our business that's love just uh just don't pay any attention to it just stay away uh, so just stay away from the situation that could be uh that could be a, a good piece of advice and I think um, I think uh, Soren would say that love uh, sometimes looks away. It doesn't always engage. And I just think about like a, a couple that's having a fight or a child having a tantrum at the store. You know, we just forbear it and just um, and and don't get in the middle of it. I, I was on a I was on a subway maybe a year or two ago in Philadelphia, where there was a black man and. A white individual, and I'm not sure if the white individual was uh, was female or male. I think he was a male, but the white person had done something uh, inappropriately, and I didn't catch what the person had done. But the black person was super, super angry about it, and probably felt the white person was being um, <clears throat> was being uh, racist or prejudiced in, in what they said or how they acted or something. And my inclination as a counselor is to want to bring bring peace and put myself in the middle of the situation and try to help the parties see eye to eye. But the counsel at that time that I gave myself is stay out of this. You don't know what happened. You don't know if the black person has a legitimate point here. I assume they do. I assume they're reacting to something wrong that the white person did. Uh, don't get in the middle of this. This is not your issue. And I got off a, a station or two earlier than I needed to in order to stay out of the situation. So that was love to me. I felt like I just had to stay out of it. So Soren writes, The power of Christian love, which is unlike other love, is not great because of spectacular achievement, but is great is greater in its quiet wondrousness. Uh, so there's a lot of love that can just be quiet, a quiet, a quiet look, a quiet thought, a compassionate act in the middle of anonymity can be, uh, can be love. Um, but the one who turns a sinner from the error of his ways, of him, the Apostle James says, he hides a multitude of sins. That's uh, from James, of course. But it is possible to relate properly how love's, but is it possible uh, to relate properly how love hides a multitude of sins? Or is it not even more multiple 
than the multiplicity of sin. When love sees the bruised reed, then it knows how to hide a multitude of sins, so that the reed is not crushed under the burden. When it sees the smoking wick, and this is out of the Old Testament, uh, refers to Jesus, uh, Jesus's um, ministry in a prophetic way. When it sees the smoking wick, then it knows how to hide a multitude of sins, so that the flame is not put out. When it has been victorious over a multitude of sins, then it knows how to cover the multitude, multitude again. Then it makes everything festive for the reception, just as the prodigal's, uh, prodigal son's father did. Uh, think about that story in Luke, the prodigal son. Then it stands with open arms and waits for the delinquent, has forgotten everything, and brings the delinquent uh, himself to forget everything, as again it hides a multitude, multitude of sins. The story of the prodigal, I think, is only in Luke. Sometimes the Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have the same stories, sometimes from a different perspective. A lot of times people say because they're not exactly the same, they must be fabrications or some form of legends. But I think the fact that you have these different individual individuals involved in writing these these accounts and talking to different people about what happened if they weren't there People often see different things, and that's just reality. I know from working in a high school, if you had a situation involving more than one person, it was rather uh, fascinating how different people could view the same situation. It doesn't mean they were wrong. There is that subjectivity piece that Soren talks about. We all see facts uh, through our own perspective. It doesn't mean the facts don't exist, but we have an in, imperfect understanding of them sometimes. <laughs> Uh, it doesn't mean that facts are uh, fiction. Love does not weep over the multitude of sins. Uh, love does not weep over the multitude of sins. If that were the case, then it would indeed see the multitude itself, but it covers the multitude. I don't know if that's correct. I think, I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know if Soren's getting out there. I think uh, maybe he's just saying like, uh, don't, don't, don't invest too many tears in the tragedy of human life. Do something about it. Cover them rather than wallow in them and when uh, sin and when, and when sin resisted then love becomes even more multifarious never wearies or faithfully pulling in an unequal yoke with it does not weary of believing all things hoping all things enduring all things when sin hardens itself against love and wishes to be rid of it when it returns abuse and scorn and ridicule for kindness, then love does not repay abusive language with abusive language, then it blesses and does not curse. When sin enviously hates love, when it's in its malice it wants to bring love itself to sin, then it finds no guile and love's mouth but prayer and admonition. But when prayers and admonition only incite sin and become a new occasion for the multiplicity of sin, then love is, is mute but no less faithful, faithful as a woman. It rescues as a woman does without a word, First Peter 3.1. So uh, Peter's talking about how the, contact, how the conduct of a, of a wife can win their husband even without a word. First Peter 3.1, uh, Sin thought that it had managed so that their ways would uh, soon be parted, but see, love stayed with it. And sin wants to thrust love away. It forces love to walk one mile, but see, love walked two miles. It struck love's right cheek, but love, but see, love turned the other cheek. It took uh, love's coat, but see, love, love gave all, gave also its cloak. 
And that comes from Jesus, the uh, Sermon on the Mount. And again, there's so much scripture verse here that if I did these references and explained these references, uh, this, this long episode would be even longer. Already sin feels its powerlessness. It cannot withstand love any longer. It wants to tear itself away. Then it insults love as painfully as possible because it thinks that even love cannot forgive more than seven times. But see, love could forgive 70 times, uh, seven times. Uh, 112, that's uh, from Matthew, I think. And then sin grew weary of occasionally, uh, occasionally, let's see, and sin grew weary of occasioning forgiveness more quickly than love grew weary of forgiving. <laughs> and kind of wear out the sinner just by love. Indeed, uh, just as there is a power in sin that has the perseverance to consume, even better feeling a person has, so there is a heavenly power that starves the multiplicity of sin out of a person. It's almost like taking away what the tumor's feeding on. This power is love that hides a multitude of sins. And these days, I would say the Christian evangelical right likes to point out the hypocrisies and the sins of the left. And then there's a place for that. I'm not sure we do it with compassion. I think we do it with a sense of condemnation more than anything. And I'm conservative, uh, for sure. I have conservative credentials, have for decades. I am not a liberal. So I think there is, a, there is a time to call into account our culture and the people in this culture that are deliberately misleading people and promoting things that God would not promote. But again, do it with tears in our eyes. So I'm going to finish up with a little bit of reading out of here. So stick with me as we finish up. This is from the book Beyond Imminence, uh, The Theological Vision of Kierkegaard and Bart. This is the book I got for free from Erdman's, and I'm reading through it. Uh, Bart is a Swiss theologian uh, from the 20th century who um, was very influential. And I think the basic thesis of this book so far is how much Bart, Karl Bart, owed to Soren Kierkegaard in terms of developing his own theological um, kind of theological system, uh, for lack of a better word. And both, uh, both uh, Bart and Kierkegaard emphasize the otherness of God without um, losing the eminence of God or the incarnation expressed in Jesus. Like there's tension between the transcendence of God, which is like what Islam would get into, that God is so different that he could never become a man. And this idea, kind of more pantheistic, that we're all gods, that we're like the Hindu version of uh, of gods, uh, that we are, that we have godlike powers. So there's there's tension in this kind of balance between transcendence and eminence. And uh, both Kierkegaard and Bart would say that God is transcendent, but he's not. He's close in Jesus. So there's this tension between those two ideas. So uh, God is limited. This is from the book. And I want to do Bart justice. I'm reading about him separately because I don't want to do to Bart what people do to Kierkegaard, which is misunderstand him so much that they don't even misunderstand correctly, as Soren would say. I want to know enough about Bart to know where if he's wrong, I know he's wrong for the reasons I know he's wrong, not because someone else told me. As God has limited a human being, this is Soren here, being physically, so he's also set bounds to him in a spiritual sense. If no other way, simply, in, in no other way, by simply by his being a creature, one who has not created himself. By means of abstract imaginative thinking, a person wishes to transform himself, although if this uh, self-creation were to succeed, it would simply mean his annihilation. Yet at the same time, he does uh, continue to exist, to be present, and therefore it can never succeed. That desire for autonomy 
the desire to be free of God's, um, God's authority. God's authority, therefore, is more radical than any form of earthly authority. On this matter, Kierkegaard is explicit. God's relationship to the world is not like that of an earthly government. God has, after all, the Creator's right to demand faith and obedience from what is created, as well as that every created being in his heart dare think only all that is agreeable to him. As Creator, God knows what is best for us from beyond our own immediate perception of what we think might be best. Also, since creation is bound to God in a bond of love, any demands that God makes of us are not those of a tyrant, but of a loving parent. In, this, uh, in the relationship between God and creation, it is out of love that God calls creation to order. This means that a person's proper response to the creative love ought to be to follow God on God's terms and for God's reasons. Kierkegaard writes, We talk about being obliged to love God by virtue of being created by God, and the only one who truly loves God is the apostle, who, he who, in order to become an instrument, is absolutely, unconditionally shattered by God. To love God because he has created you is to love yourself. No, if you want to love God in truth, you must show it by gladly, adoringly, letting yourself be totally shattered by God in order that he can unconditionally advance his will. And again, there's all these scripture verses and all these other references to Soren's other writings here. <clears throat> Knowing how inclined humans are to want to define their relationship with God in their own terms, it becomes a kind of theological mantra for Kierkegaard, this is the authors of this book, that it is not God who belongs to creation, but creation that belongs to God. One of the ways he sought to differentiate sharply between these two perceived sources of meaning was to insist that God and creation are distinguished by what he referred to as an infinite qualitative difference. By insisting on this, he sought to discourage theological ambitions that sought to go further than is possible for, for finite human thought, thereby virtuing into idolatry, namely theologizing that treats the distinction between God and his creation as a finite qualitative difference. So God is God, man is man. And I would just end on this final thought here. Um, the moral, moral and ethical implications of Darwinism was to try to divorce the creature from the creator. Let's just be honest about it. Outside of its, the, um, its scientific kind of definition of um, evolution, which is, is tottering right now. If, you, if you're not in the stream of thought right now of what um, biologists are saying, uh, especially uh, design theorists, uh, Darwinian evolution as it's presently conceived could not work the way it is understood. The idea that natural selection and mutations could create complexity is a ridiculous idea. Um, but be that as it may, there's no doubt that one of the sub-motivations um, sub in Darwinian theory was to divorce man from his creator and to create kind of autonomy and to say that we don't owe anything to anybody. We are self-created. We define the truth. We define meaning. And the purpose of, uh, purpose of existence is self-referential and it is survival, which is kind of a, a bare-knuckle idea if you get down to it. And so if you haven't uh, done some research on the weaknesses, the profound weakness of Darwinian thinking, how natural selection and mutations create complexity, <laughs> it is an absolutely ridiculous idea. And I speak as somebody that has knowledge uh, because of my PhD in related matters of neurological and cognition, how meaning is constructed. 
I, I interacted enough with bio, bio, biological thinking and biologists to know that the thesis that somehow complexity can come from mutations is extremely, extremely unlikely and requires a tremendous amount of faith. But we owe allegiance to the creator, and Darwinian evolution cannot break that. So just take that as a um, final thought. Uh, maybe get into that more next time. Maybe, maybe not. But we owe to God uh, the, uh, the, uh, the gratitude and the joy and the uh, sense of allegiance to him because he is indeed our father. So I'll leave it at that, and uh, we'll see you next week.